It's just after 10 o'clock, yeah, on Lion Art Radio. It's time for the movie hour with me, Paul Young. And me, Daniel Mumby. Right, we're gonna, I think we'll do, we'll kick off with a bit of music and then we'll get straight into the UK's top 10. Sounds good to me. That's I Want It All, which I'm pretty sure will be Simon Cowell's ringtone, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it has been for a number of years. Yeah, right, uh, the UK's top 10. Yeah, we better kick in, so do you want to read them out and I'll come in? Yeah, well, no, first one is definitely yours. Number 10, we've got another, yeah? Which is Mike Lee returning to form after the slightly, uh, soft-pedalling work of happy-go-lucky. I mean, any Mike Lee film is worth seeing. Go and see Topsy-Turvy if you haven't, but it's a really warm and genuinely funny film with proper characters, which is a rarity nowadays. And, uh, speaking of rarities, we've got a re-entry into the top ten. Yeah, Alpha and Omega's at number nine, which, um, we talked about a couple of weeks ago and then it dropped out and it's in back in. It's... And it's essentially... It's quite hard to explain because it was kind of released as a kind of also-ran half-term event and it's... It's a ropey, innocuous animation about rivaling packs of walls, which is notable only for the fact that it's got Dennis Hopper's last performance in. Which brings me back to my advice, which is, if you haven't already, go and watch his finest performance in Blue Velvet, which is just an extraordinary piece of work, and we'll actually be talking about that a little bit later when we come to the re-release of Peeping Tom. You have to be of a certain age to watch Blue Velvet. Yeah, it's an 18 <laughs> certificate, and it's not for the faint-hearted, but Dennis Hopper is extraordinary in that. Yeah, I'm wondering why this is, because it's not, as best of my knowledge, it's not been half-term, unless it's been half-term in Scotland or something bizarre, that, that I don't get how this has come back in, because there was the Legends of the Guardians, which looked a superior made film. I'm wondering why that one hasn't gone back in, and Alpha and Omega has. Probably because nobody understood the plot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange... Because Nazi owls? What? Who's, who's that? Is it, I mean, because by looking at the top ten, there is only one other new entry. Is it just basically in a slow week so that stuff sort of crept back in and... Possibly. I mean, it was... We were struggling for a recommendation last week and a lot of the films we we did recommend were limited release, so it might be... I mean, we'll come to Skyline after another song, but... Uh, yeah, and one... Speaking of what... That one's just come back in. One which dropped out, which we were just discussing during the record, was Let Me In. Yeah, there is no Let Me In this week. I mean, it went in at number eight last week, so there was already a, a sign that it's underperformed and as you checked during that song, it hasn't even made its budget back. Yes, so... Um, if we could all buy a copy of it on DVD for Christmas, that would really help, uh, help yeah. the film company. Mr. Reeves. Yes. Not Vic Reeves, but <laughs> Matt Reeves, who uh, also directed Cloverfield. And following on from low-budget horror films, we've got Paranormal Activity 2. Probably the most boring horror film of the year. No, Blair Witch Project is scarier. The last broadcast, which Blair Witch was kind of a rip-off of anyway, is edgier, and it, out of all of these, Cannibal Holocaust is a lot more disturbing, so found footage is your thing, go and watch that instead. Did you see The Last Exorcism this year? I didn't see it in cinemas, no. That was born. <laughs> it was um, 70 minutes, I think the whole film was about 80 minutes long, 70 minutes just sort of following around. It, it is an interesting idea with this guy trying to expose the the, the, the the myth about exorcisms and does it actually exist and is it actually important and does it, that sort of thing. And then it all went bonkers at the end. Yeah, I heard, <laughs> I heard the ending is a bit of a rip-off of The Devil's Reign. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. It was like you going, oh, right. Oh, so, and they just resorted to hillbilly ending. <laughs> basically, they went, yeah, we're in... Deep was there water. a guy sitting in the background with a banjo? There wasn't a banjo, but there was basically every other redneck sort of thing. There was the roadside diner with all the people looking a bit weird and you a bit edgy. You will squeal like a pig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you follow that comment? <laughs> With the social network at number seven. Which is really great. It'll be interesting to see what kind of attention it gets when the first round of nominations comes out, because I think the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs are only about a month or two away. The interesting thing, I was reading a piece on uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, just a couple of weeks ago, 
couple of nights ago, actually, rather, saying that the uh, the long listing for the Oscar nominations has already started because they have the long list and the short list, and then that's whittled down to five or ten nominations depending on the category. And there's been some furore because Cats and Dogs 2, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, which was widely you know, panned over the summer, has been nominated for a Best Animated Film Oscar. Is is that indication that it's um, a slow yet, or they're just creating fodder for Toy Story 3 to well, destroy? Well, I mean, that latter comment is certainly a, a good uh, theory, but I checked this out, and the reason why it's got nominated is that it's, it isn't the Academy themselves that decide n what gets nominated. The long list is determined by the film distributors actually putting the film forward, saying, actually, we'd like you to consider this, hence the phrase, for your consideration. I mean, I don't think it stands a chance of getting into the nomination. Somebody had, somebody sat there Let's put this forward. <laughs> <laughs> Got nothing else to do. This is a dreadful film which represents even an, a further step down the ladder for Chris O'Donnell. And uh, it's just like, ah. Oh. Yeah. I see, I, I, I grew up with him as, as Robin in Batman Robin, so I kind of have a little... We just have heart. a community, a collective shudder. <sighs> <sighs> yeah. I think we're a minute sight of this for the, <laughs> his career. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's an odd... I, I don't know, it's like Alpha and Omega getting nominated for Best Animated one. Well, that's not going to happen, I don't think. Yeah, it's a... Uh, well, best of luck if you fancy an outside bet. Yeah, you'll probably get odds <laughs> of something like a quarter of a million to one, and then... <laughs> you never know, strange yeah. things have happened. Yeah, uh, but well, the Chelsea game, for instance. Yes, I would, uh, I would have hazard a guess that if you're going to put your money on best animated film, it's got to be Toy Story. Yeah. It's kind of a nailed on that one. Mm -hmm. I think I would be outraged if it wasn't. Uh, and number six, we've got Red. I'll defer to you on this which, one. Which, um... I've seen him for the past few weeks. It's a good film. It's a good, solid action-slash-comedy film with Bruce Willis, Helen Mirren, John Malkovich, and Morgan Freeman. But, is it good? <laughs> is it that good that it's been in the charts for this many weeks? I don't think so. I think it's more an indication that there's nothing else out. Which is a strange one, because I, I know we've got a big behemoth of a Harry Potter film, which we'll get to later. Yes. Which is going to sort of steamroll everything out in its path, but... I don't know, it's... It, it was a good thing. It was kind of a film... You like a six or a seven out of ten sort of film. Mm -hmm. um, one which maybe people will pick up on DVD, but for the people that keep going back to the cinema to see it is, it's a bit bizarre. It is a good film, but it's not that good. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to see it on DVD, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's a strange one. That at number five, we've got Saw 3D. Pointless, boring, infantile, stupid, just rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> I think that should be written on the poster. <laughs> It's it's the same old stuff. Um, in an in, uh, well, I nearly I nearly give them the publicity they didn't deserve. But in what is they believe is an interesting move, they are bringing back the original character from the first film. A bit of a spoiler, but in the first film, the guy chops his leg off to get himself free. Yeah. And he comes back, and he's in when the character's in the end one. It's kind of like bringing it full circle. So hopefully, this means it's the last one. It's the same thing. Except where they've been 3D, there's a few bits that come at the screen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it was actually, it's full title, I think, in some territories, was Saw 3D, the final chapter. So maybe we're going to get a Saw 8, or is it? Yeah, with <laughs> that, because of, the, because of the, I don't think they have any sort of problem with coming up with very bad puns and stuff like that. You can see another one going, Saw 8, the final cut. Something like that next year. There's going to be. I, I think it's got because it's, it's it's obviously still in the cinema, making good money, and it probably didn't cost that much to make. And it's not like the cast are going to cost a lot because they're full of nobodies we've ever heard of before. Yeah, and that'll bring us onto Skyline when we come to that in a bit. Yeah, and the number four, Jackass 3D. Well, I've been thinking about this a bit more, and in terms of the 3D of it, it's kind of the better end of 3D in terms of 3D's a gimmick and it is 
used in a gimmicky way. So it's doing kind of what it says on the tin. The problem with it is that it doesn't have any kind of story and it is just a bunch of infantile stunts laced together with toilet humour. It's basically, if someone sat you down and said, just watch YouTube for an hour and a half, Mm -hmm. And she so just typed crying baby, laughing baby, man falls over. It's basically... David at the dentist. Yeah, it's basically that <laughs> for for an hour and a half. It's a shame because I did see um, Johnny Knoxville interviewed on, I think it was a Graham Norton show a few weeks ago, and he's a fairly well-adjusted film, which is surprising, <laughs> uh, individual, and he's, he seems fairly clever, and he's done some other films in the past, and they're always sort of in the comedy genre, but I think he can play better than this but I suppose I just got in it when you were saying you know well adjusted and intelligent I got the impression of him coming out in a Noel Coward smoking jacket <laughs> no he, he came out with a with a shirt and tie on and then proceeded uh, refused to wear the tie and it was just I don't know it was I think basically the fact that this is such a money making machine and as I say they don't have to sit and write a script they get a couple of video cameras and say right lads act an idiot yep and to get away with it. At uh, number three, we've got Despicable Me. I'm going to try and catch this at the Playhouse when it shows a uh, week on Monday, which is the 29th. I mean, I'm, I'm put off a bit by the connection with Ice Age because it's produced by Chris Andre, who produced the first two Ice Age films, which are kind of all over the place. Um, but it might be kind of good family fun in a kind of disposable way. Yeah, is it, um, you have to refresh my memory, I've maybe been a bit uh, ignorant here. Do they have the three-day act of the Playhouse or not yet? Not as far as I'm aware. Right. Although the time side has just been converted into 3D, all the under they've, they've built another another screening room where you can watch uh, Tron when it gets released next month. Really? Is that one, not one of the first signs of the apocalypse? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it is something approaching sacrilege for those of us who like their films in flat, but we'll, we'll have to see. Yes. Um, there was something else, someone was saying about um, on the radio, it was like, would you buy a pair of glasses that would let you see in 3D all the time? And lots of stupid people said, oh, I don't think I'd like that. <laughs> no. It'll be like putting on the sunglasses and they live. You, you think it's going to be fine and then suddenly, oh no, everybody's aliens. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of aliens, oh, number, two, number two, it's the other new entry of the week. Well, it's the only new entry because uh, yeah. Alpha Omega was a re-entry, is Skyline. Dumb, derivative sci-fi action film starring a bunch of Z-listers, much like The Saw, who, it, it rips off everything from Cloverfield to War of the Worlds, Independence Day, and of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, to which all these kind of alien invasion films owe some kind of debt. It's notable only for the fact that they've managed to make fairly high-quality special effects on a very limited budget, but it's directed from by the guys who made Aliens vs. Predator Requiem, and they don't know how to do story or characters. Yes, it's, it's if you if you like. Them, Did you see this in the end? Because you said you no, that I, I see, I see uh, uh, my car was otherwise engaged by the parents. Any um, excuse? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was sent you in the email. It, I, Maybe it's karma or fate working against saying, look, just stay away from this film. <laughs> yes. So It'll be out of the box office in the ten, top ten in a couple of weeks. So. Yeah, I might I have a I have a week off work, so I'm, I might, I don't know, I might ruin the week off by going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't hurt. Uh, and number one, we've got a due date. Which only exists because The Hangover took money. We're going to have The Hangover Part 2 coming up next summer. On your own headbeard, if you went to see this, just save your money, go and see something else. I've noticed more and more creeping in um, on certain DVDs that you rent and when you're in shops and stuff. They all have the same sort of quote on them now, which is like, the funniest film since The Hangover. Or, if you love um, The Hangover, you'll love this, which yeah. means nothing. And so, so far, I've counted about 20 films, which is, are the new Hangovers. So... 
the sequel of The Hangover is going to have to be bloody brilliant. <laughs> have you ever seen a film which to which The Hangover has a debt called Very Bad Things with Christian Slater? Oh, that is that is that's twisted in places. But yeah, it's, it's not brilliant, but it's, it's no. It's, the it's, first twenty minutes, when um, shall we say, no, somebody gets killed in a rather goofy manner involving a coat hanger, is uh, yes. <laughs> I think they referred to as sex workers. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to skirt around <laughs> that sort of issue, considering it's twenty past ten in the morning. But uh, we've already had squeal like a pig, so I think we're already trolling the sewer. <laughs> yeah, already. Fair enough. I mean, if we can talk about deliverance, we can talk about almost anything. Yeah. Interesting, one last point. Um, if you go and see Tim Burton's Big Fish, if you get that on DVD, which is a terrific film, yep. um, there is a cameo in it by Billy Redden, who is the banjo player in Deliverance. He turns up for about three seconds playing a banjo on a swinging seat. Yeah, he was, yeah. We watch that at work sometimes when we're bored. We put the old Deliverance clip on YouTube yes. and that lad is just... Some other world, otherworldly about him. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit odd, but anyway, um, we'll, we'll move on for that. Otherwise, we would talk about deliverance all morning, and we would inevitably stray into territory which would be. Can we find the theme unwise. tune on the, on the <laughs> system? Have we got the banjos? We'll stick on the King's Leon, and then we will we'll banjo it up. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll talk about the man who fell to earth. Yes. Lionheart Radio. Kings of Leon there with Radioactive from what I have to say, unfortunately, is a bit of a disappointing album. I'm not the biggest Kings of Leon fan and Sex on Fire was massively overplayed, but I'll take your word for that. Yes, yeah, the album was very, every song sort of had instant sort of affection with it, but this one, maybe it's a grow, I don't know. Anyway, we're going off track. We'll yeah. go Let me know week. in a few weeks' time I will it's do. grown on you. This week's cult film is... The Man Who Fell to Earth. Very interesting uh, 1976 science fiction film based albeit loosely, on 1963 novel by Walter Tevis. Notable um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was the first film to be shot in America with an all-British crew, which is a feat that so far I don't think has been replicated widely. Directed by Nicholas Rogue, who is you know, widely regarded as one of the biggest um, experimental British filmmakers of the 60s and 70s. He previously made things like Performance, which was the film in which Mick Jagger makes his acting debut and plays two characters, and that makes no sense at all. <laughs> There's a film called Walkabout, and famously he made Don't Look Now with Judy Christie and Donald Sutherland, which features that incredibly realistic um, sex scene in the middle. And I think the film was, and it was actually re released on the double bill with The Wicker Man first time out, which is quite a, a, a weird way to spend your evening. Um, a couple of other things. It was produced by Barry Spikings and Michael Dealey. They would later team up for The Deer Hunter and Barry, and Michael Dealey uh, is quite an important guy to me because he's the guy who produced Blade Runner. So, you know, there is a certain amount of, you know, prestige that goes with the film. And it's also, of course, notable for the fact that it's the acting debut of David Bowie, whom we'll be playing some of his stuff in just a second. Now, Bowie's acting career is incredibly uneven because on the one hand you've got his good performances like Into the Night, uh, Labyrinth, The Last Temptation of Christ and The Prestige which has got one of the coolest entrances in you know, the last few years when he just materialises out of pure electricity and on the other hand you've got stuff like Absolute Beginners, the Julian Temple film and Just a Gigolo which was the film that brought Marlene Dietrich out of retirement and it was David Bowie described the its reception as so bad it was like I had my 32 Elvis Presley movies all rolled into one <laughs> So the plot, although I use the phrase quite loosely, is David Bowie plays an alien called Thomas Jerome Newton who comes from a far-off unnamed world at the planet is dying and he comes down to Earth in search of water, hence the man who fell to Earth. He sets up a company called World Enterprises uh, to raise the money, patenting a series of inventions which use technology which is far in advance of the Earth's own and he becomes incredibly rich in a short space of time and comes to the attention of a rogue scientist played by uh, Rip Torn. And we were talking about... Um, was while we were off there. What was it you were seeing, Ian? 
He was, uh, he was the main guy in Men in Black. He was like the boss of the Men in Black. Yeah, I mean, he's quite a, a well-considered character actor, but uh, this is one of his first kind of big roles. From yes, him. and we also just got another film which is, which I don't even think we can say the title. Yeah, better not. Let's, let's not <laughs> risk it. Um, so, in addition to his meeting with Rip Torn, uh, Bowie's character also gets, develops a relationship with a girl who's played by Candy Clark and eventually gets distracted from his desire to help the planet and stays on Earth to become a drunken recluse. And that's the central irony of the story. A man who goes out searching for water ends up becoming a drunk. <laughs> um, we're going to play something from um, David Bowie's 1977 album, Low, um, because it's because it does have a relevance with the film in terms of um, the connection between Bowie's music and film career. So we'll just play a couple of minutes of this and then we'll talk about it. I think you get a fair idea um, from that. I mean, what, what sort of things come into your mind when you hear that? Um, well, I'm kind of tarnished because I saw the... I've watched bits of this film because it is available on YouTube. But Other I, sites are available. I didn't say that. <laughs> um, it just seems like a perfect thing you could play at the beginning of the film because the beginning starts with him. It's a very slow thing where he walks down this like, what looks like a quarry and then yeah. he's wandering around the, the town and then there's the drunk who's in the... F there's a, an abandoned fun fair and the drunk sort of shouts at him and it's just like... It just could sum up... That music could play in the background it would be perfect for it. Yeah, and that's exactly the kind of reaction. The reason we played a track from Low is that during the filming of Man Who Fell to Earth, which kind of took place in six months through 1975, and the film came out early the following year, Bowie's life and the character sort of became intertwined. It was made at the height when at the height of his cocaine addiction, when he was living off, in his own words, a diet of cocaine, red peppers, and milk, which is a lifestyle we do not condone on this program. Uh, and the I don't think Susie Howie's going to be plugging that this week on a food <laughs> show. <laughs> food ship number two hundred. <laughs> Yes, if she's listening. Um, so it was made at the height. That cocaine addiction obviously led to the famous fascist salute, or was it, outside Victoria Station, where he was captured with one arm raised in the air and everyone thought he was a Nazi, and you know, he's vehemently denied it. Yeah. Um, and the covers of both Lower and its predecessor, Station to Station, are actually stills from The Man Who Fell to Earth. And you could even argue, to some extent, that his persona of the Thin White Duke is effectively a kind of a corruption of the Thomas Newton character in terms of, and certainly in the later stages of the film where he's completely apathetic to the point of being a complete misanthrope. Mm. Here's the thing, Britain has a history of producing very odd films. We were talking about The Bed Sitting Room uh, two weeks ago in Flash Gordon just last week. This went out on a double bill with, sorry, uh, Don't Look Now, Rogue's previous film went out on a double bill with The Wicker Man, which is a really strange film. Yes, it's, um, <laughs> yes. Very bizarre with a good ending. Yes, a really good ending. Um, there is a certain amount of precedent in uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth in terms of its visual style, apart from the fact that it is an extension of Rogue's other interest in just manipulating narrative and colour. There are a couple of filmmakers to which it owes a big debt. The first one is um, Michelangelo Antonioni. Have you seen any of his films? I don't remember the names unless you shout them out now. Um, <laughs> but the main one that is the debt to are things. There's a film called Passenger, which is the one where Jack Nicholson is... Uh, he's a journalist who takes on the identity of a dead man to escape, but the dead man turns out to be a drug dealer. It's it's the one that's famous for having the uh, the incredibly long penultimate shot where it's just one continuous shot for five minutes of just the camera moving around a, a marketplace. That sounds remarkably like the plot for Date Movie, which was the Steve Carell, <laughs> Tina Fey, Phil. Phil and it's this. also <laughs> similar to the plot of The American, the new Anton Corbin, George Clooney film, which is coming out in a few weeks' time. So there, it was something to that. There's also a film of his called Zabriskie Point, which is a kind of um, zeitgeist film at the at the beginning of the 70s about two people who, in a part of the hippie movement, go off and have sex in Death Valley. And uh, everything blows up at the end. Um, but in the sense that in Antonioni's films, the landscape 
landscape is very much as, um, as much a character as the people running around in it, and there's lots of kind of long, beautiful shots of the landscape. The other filmmaker it owes a debt to is Andrei Tarkovsky, who made Solaris, and there is the same sense of uh, somebody desperately trying to get home and being haunted by images or memories of his family. It's not sure when Bowie sees images of his you know, family back on his own planet, whether he's seeing the past or the future, is it a premonition and so forth. And like Tarkovsky's The Mirror, there's no real plot, it's just a kind of a stream of consciousness. Um, when we were um, putting this together, you were talking about, um, you were comparing this to Blade Runner, saying, you know, is the director's cut any more coherent? Yes. And the answer to that is a definitive no. <laughs> um, the, we'll come on to the, the different versions of the film in a second, but uh, when it was originally released in early 1976, Nicholas Rogue actually put out a statement with the film saying, I've sought to relieve the audience from the crutch of time present in Western cinema and you should go in with an open mind. What that basically means is the film makes no sense and you need a lot of patience to sit through it. And the film does have no real concept of the passage of time in the sense that characters do age in the sense that, you know, people put on different wigs and hair greys and they wear spectacles. But it's never made clear of how much time has passed. You know, how long has it taken David Bowie to become a multi-multi-billionaire? How long has it taken to build a rocket that will take him back to his home planet? Yeah, just, uh, yeah, because there's a, a, you have not, I don't know whether this is the original director's cut, the vision that I saw. There's a bit where he, he goes, he first comes to Earth and he, he pawns one of the, the gold rings yes. straight away. And then the next scene he's at a business meeting yes and it's like i just sort of went hang on and i thought well as i say i was watching youtube so i thought well this is obviously some that, dodgy that, video but is, yes. is, that, is that actually what happened it's just sort of like yeah that's actually what happened it's just like certainly in the, then the longest version which is the version i've seen yeah it was just a bit odd and a bit <laughs> confusing i thought hang on and i thought anyway, anyway any in terms of uh, one thing you can always say about this film is absolute perfect casting yes we'll, we'll come on to the casting a little bit later on but um i mean so you have, on the, you have on the surface a film which, like we said, is narratively incoherent, which has no sense of the passage of time, which is two and a half hours long when fully uncut. So you'd expect it to be a total mess. And yet there is something incredibly powerful about it. I mean, a number of things. First of all, Rogue is a brilliant visual artist. I mean, he started off his career as a cinematographer before he became a director in his own right. And he, he's a director who knows how to manipulate light and colour to create uniquely striking images. I mean, you think of all the, the images in Don't Look Now, where it's you know, the, the, the strange colour of blood that he has, which is the exact same colour on screen as the girl in the red mm. uh, you know, coat, which is you know, not going to give the ending of Don't Look Now away, if, although if you haven't seen it, by all means check it out. Um, there are you just uniquely striking moments in it like the scenes of Bowie's home planet where you've got this desert and people wandering around with no hair and yellow eyes with air packs on and yet there's a monorail going through it and you think okay how does that work <laughs> um it does manage to take a very i mean as far as i'm aware the novel is quite a kind of straightforward normal science fiction and novel in the sense that it proceeds in a linear fashion and he just basically takes it and says okay let's mix it up a bit and see what we can get the film is absolutely a product of its time in the sense that it is a deeply druggy experience. I mean, did you get the sense when you were watching bits of it of, this is quite a trippy thing? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, because obviously in, in some places it's, it's obviously not got cutting edge special effects and uh, whatnot, so they no. and so you sort of look and just go, it does have that look of it. I don't know, like, not, I wouldn't like to say made by people on drugs, but... It, it, you know, <laughs> well, in Bowie's case, that was true. But yeah, it has, it's just that, that thing, just sort of go, it just, like... Biz bizarre, not bizarre for the sake of being bizarre, but just sort of watching going, 
Okay, and, and uh, some films that you've got, they're like, like, are you either with us or, or you, you, this is what we're going to do and we don't really, like you said, we're not really bothered whether the audience get it or not because we get it and they're a bit pretentious, but this is yeah. just, I don't know, just had a very odd, odd look about it. The closest comparison I would draw in terms of its psychedelic edges, if you've ever seen Ken Russell's adaptation of Tommy, the Who's concept album, there's a whole sequence in that called the Acid Queen sequence where Roger Daltrey is given LSD in a, a kind of iron suit by Tina Turner, who's playing the Acid Queen. And in that sequence where you have um, an iron suit with him being injected with loads of needles mm -hmm. and red liquid running all over the place and the camera is kind of zooming in and out all the time and then every so often the suit opens up with this really kind of graphic image of like Roger Daltrey covered in blood or Roger Daltrey covered in poppies or Roger Daltrey's father kind of twitching because he gets killed off at the beginning of the film. Um, that's sorry, that's a spoiler. Um, so like I say, there are druggy elements of it. I mean the opening scene in the quarry which you were mentioning does resemble the footage of Sid Barrett, the lead singer of Pink Floyd, tripping on magic mushrooms in a quarry. I mean, there's that kind of rare mm. footage. Some people think it's faked, but actually, I, I, as far as I'm aware, it's genuine. And it may be that the only way to explain the film is like being in an extended state of drunkenness or on an acid trip, in the sense that not much makes sense and you don't really have any control over what's going on, but it's not an entirely unpleasant experience. Should the uh, listeners watch this film whilst taking LSD? Of course not. We do not condone <laughs> drug use or abuse of any kind on this programme, or indeed alcohol abuse. Um, but he's, he's, he's nodding his head, listeners. <laughs> no, I'm not nodding his head. I'm just kind of saying, no, glad we got that out of the way. Um, the film is, in many ways, a kind of it's a bridge between, I mean, the novel is very much a product of the 60s, but it's a kind of bridge between the late hippie peace, love and drug stuff of the late 60s and all the kind of paranoia in the 70s that came after the Altamont concert with the Rolling Stones. The film is also deeply indulgent insofar as there are large amounts of nudity. Um, for instance, both Bowie and Rip Torn displayed their, um, can we say manhoods at this time in the morning? Is that the kindest way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah, they display their respective manhoods in the fully uncut version. There's a, a rather esoteric in-joke about Rip Torn sleeping with a... Uh, uh, there's a montage of him sleeping with loads of students and they make jokes about their fa their respective fathers, which doesn't make sense if I said it now, and it is a bit odd, but, uh, you know, see the film. There are also some um, very rough sex scenes in it which kind of resemble a mugging rather than anyone else. You're certainly not kind of... It's not the sort of sex scene which you will watch on a loop to be titillated by, and I think that that was completely the intention of the filmmaker. But there are all also other things like um, Rogue's fondness for zooming in on odd bits of the screen for no reason and there is a really well, almost inexcusable moment where Bowie has revealed himself to be an alien by removing his, um, I think it's his eyebrows and his, you know, his hair and the, f and the film cuts to Candy Clark just screaming and then it zooms in on her underwear to show that she's kind of urinating in fear and you think actually I don't want you doing that because that's quite adolescent and I wish you'd stop it now but then it, you know, it carries on yeah, it's maybe a bit uncalled for something Yeah, like that. That, uncalled for is the word, and I'm not going to ask Nicholas Rogue how he got that special effect, but, you know... What's the certificate on this film? It's 18. I was going to say, yeah. And it's fully uncovered, and I think there is one 15 print of it around where all the nudity's taken out, but in terms of... I think the best cut is the, uh, is the full two-and-a-half-hour one, even though it does require more patience. The thing is, so, on the one hand, we have a film which is incoherent in terms of its narrative, <laughs> is indulgent in terms of the amount of nudity, and there is, I guess, a fair, from memory, a fair amount of swearing involved. But, at the base of it all, it does have a fair amount of substance. It's a very profound film about the destructive effect of 
wealth and the capitalist lifestyle you have someone with completely noble intentions who you know comes down to earth at the start of the film with just the sole intention of saving his people at any cost and the longer he stays on earth and the more he soaks up of the way the earth works the less desire he has to help anyone at all until eventually he just decides well i'm not going to leave because the thing about newton's Bowie's character is that he is apparently immortal, or at least will outlive most of his human counterparts. Yeah. And so there's the whole thing of being cursed of kind of what the way it's kind of like um, the uh, the plot of the rhyme of the ancient mariner where you have somebody who commits a great mistake and is doomed to wander the earth forever, warning people not to make the same mistake. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of um, real life reclusive tycoons like Howard Hughes and William Randolph Hearst in the character, and particularly. Hughes because both of them share an obsession with television and unusual means of transportation, whether it's the Spruce Goose or the, the rocket ship that Bowie's building to get back to his home planet. Mm -hmm. In terms of the performances, it's David Bowie's best work. I mean, I really like him in uh, The Prestige, I really like him in Into the Night, which we might talk about in a couple of weeks' time, but it is he's the thing that holds this film together partly because he's actually quite beautiful to look at and he actually had because he was so skeletal he actually had to put on a stone to do the role even really? though he looks completely stick thin uh, but also he just has that kind of weird kind of fragile sensitivity where you think actually I really identify with this guy even though he's from a different planet and he's an alien and he has you no know, strange anatomical differences which we can't go into mm -hmm. at this time of the morning but um so that's the thing that holds it together. It's also Nicholas Rogue's best film. I mean, I like Don't Look Now, but I don't think it's a masterpiece by any means because the first half hour is a bit all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it just really holds up as a remarkable piece of science fiction. It's utterly indulgent, it's utterly bonkers, and you will struggle if you have very limited patience to get through it the first time around. But if you stick with it, all the kind of substance will come through, and it's a deeply cinematic experience. Right then, just to close off, let me put this point there. Sure. If it's, it's obviously it, uh, the, the sort of thing I got, it was it was obviously uh, the, the, in terms of film and the plot thing was ahead of its time. If it had been given a bigger budget, say say it got remade remade now, or if it was remade at the time with a lot more money and you sort of got better special effects, would it be as good, or do you think the the low budget sort of thing had it kind of give it its it's, it's, a, character. it's a good question. I mean, I think certainly if you remade it shot for shot with a bigger budget, it wouldn't work. I mean, the thing that, because there was so little money being put into it, I mean, it was certainly a lot less than $20 million, mm. which even for 1976 was a lot of money. Um, because the film is so profoundly a critique of capitalism, somehow remaking it with a big budget would kind of, they'd ne you'd necessitate yeah. watering that down. It's like in you no know, Oliver Street is making Oliver Stone rather is making these big kind of Wall Street films about no oh capitalism's bad. It's like okay, well what's funding your film? But I think with the man who fell to earth, because there is such a limited budget and because there's so little to play with, you have more kind of intellectual scope rather mm. than scope for spectacle, and maybe that's what modern cinema to some extent is lacking. Yeah, I just I, I, I don't know. It's one of these films. I just think it's 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 there. It's dangling. It's ripe for someone to come and remake and ruin it. Really. Yeah. Well, we were talking about um, the remake of the day of the Earth to deal with Keanu Reeves, <laughs> and in many ways it would be a perfect piece of casting if he was to play Thomas Newton because he's someone who has little or no expression. <laughs> but. Harsh. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. Um, so we're going to set a quick record on, and then I think we may as well talk about. A little film called Harry Potter? Yeah, if we have time. What are you going to do? It's Harry Potter! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll squeeze it in at the end. Yeah, we'll talk about other stuff first, yeah. We'll, we'll leave the last ten seconds for Harry Potter. <laughs> it's alright.
This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Hand in glove by the Smiths there. Rather awesome. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right, over to Daniel. Right, um, before we do the big new releases of the week, there's a couple of re-releases or kind of uh, special seasons that I'd like to just give a right up. First of all, there is a re-release for the 50th anniversary of Peeping Tom, which is a really important uh, British psychological thriller directed by Michael Powell, and it effectively ended his uh, career when it was first released released it was kicked all over town people said it was you know lurid and obscene and just unnecessary were you familiar with this film at all have you seen peeping tom uh no right um story is there is a buddy a budding filmmaker called mark who and the basic plot is he kills people with his camera he has uh, a camera on a tripod one uh, leg of which has a blade attached and he has a mirror mounted over the camera and he basically records the dying moments of his victims for a documentary about you no know, the genuine moment of death of no fear in the midst of death it was like i said kicked all over town when it came out because of its level of horror which hadn't really been seen in the mainstream cinema before and also it's very voyeuristic shooting style in the sense that the audience witnessed the murders in close-up and they're crucially made to sympathize with the killer it's interesting that it was released a couple of months before alfred hitchcock's psycho in which you don't really sympathize with norman bates even when he's being you know incredibly sweet and talking about his mother yeah um so I think that was too much for both the censors who gave it an ex-certificate and the critics at the time. And like I say, Powell never made a proper film again. But it, looking at it now, it's widely considered to be a masterpiece and it's not hard to see why. It is a fascinating look, on the one hand, at madness because you have a guy who has been tormented by his father. There's a, a scene in it in which uh, the young Mark is sleeping and his father, played in a kind of self-referential cameo by the director Michael Powell, drops a lizard on his face to wake him up and then captures the moment of his panic on film. And it's also very much a film which says... Perhaps a precursor to Jackass? <laughs> I think that's stretching Sacrilege. a point, possibly. <laughs> I don't think the Michael Powell estate would appreciate that if you just, you know, wrote I retract that statement. <laughs> yes. Um, but there's also, the interesting thing about the film is that it's a film which kind of, if you look at a film like uh, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is a self-reciprocal film about how hard it is to be a filmmaker, but also how joyous filmmaking is, Peeping Tom basically says actually the director is effectively a murderer in the sense that he will in inverted commas, commit murder and do horrible things to his cast in pursuit of the perfect shot. And about, in the end, how audiences are all voyeurs because we're watching these people being other people and getting some kind of hidden thrill out of it. We mentioned earlier on in the show about David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which is a prominent film about you know, voyeurism and you know, going into the dark depths of what seems like actually a quite superficially beautiful society. And in many ways, this is the kind of long-term precursor for this. So if you're a fan of David Lynch's work, I suggest you go and check uh, Peeping Tom out when it's, I mean, it's on limited release, but you can mm. see it in various places. The other thing, very quickly, before we talk about uh, a certain Harry Potter film, uh, there is a Powell and Pressburger season taking place at the Side Cinema in Newcastle, which is just a few minutes away from the Central Station. Uh, start, they show films every Tuesday night and they're showing four of their films starting next uh, Tuesday with A Canterbury Tale. Then I Know Where I'm Going on the 30th of November, Black Narcissus on the 7th of December, and then finishing up on the 14th with A Matter of Life and Death. Tickets are £5. They're available from the Side Cinema website, which I think is amber-online.co.uk, and all screenings start at half past seven. So if you're a fan of British cinema, go along, because Pal and Pressburger are one of the great British filmmaking duos. Sounds good. 
Right, shall we talk about um, a certain new release which is going to dominate the box office? Yeah, as a, as a little film, it was a little British, uh, yeah. independent Independently films. spirited, quirky, offbeat, it's probably going to have no life outside of DVD. Yeah. We're talking, of course, about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, which it's, is... It's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> the gonna... backlash starts now. <laughs> Don't go and see it. First it was the anti-Saw <laughs> 3D campaign, and now it's this. No, that was preceded by the anti-Danny Dyer campaign of uh, <laughs> earlier in the year, which, which was backfired. <laughs> oh, dear. Not many people have heard of Danny Dyer. Yes. Unfortunately. Well, let's not give him any more publicity because he's a horrible actor. Um, so the penultimate film in the series based upon the first half of the final book by J.K. Rowling. This is already getting confusing. Yeah, it's rather conveniently been split into two films. You know, yes. it's kind of like the... Can we... Should we double our money? Yes, we shall. Well, <laughs> they're also splitting the last Twilight book into two films as well, so you're going to get Breaking Dawn 1 and 2 in a couple of... Uh, in a few months' time. Mm, I'm more on board with Twilight than I am with Harry Potter. Yeah, um, I'm kind of agnostic about both, so... Um, Directed by David Yates, who has helmed every part of film since Order of the Phoenix, so this will be his third, and then he'll subsequently make his fourth film when the second part comes out next July. The story, roughly speaking, although, no, it's difficult to get people on board when we're this summer into the series, is Lord Voldemort is coming to power, the Ministry of Magic has been overrun, Lucius Malfoy is out of the prison of Azkaban, and our heroes are on the run trying to destroy the Horcruxes, which are items which contain a portion of Voldemort's soul, which means that he can live forever. Um, you say you're kind of, are you familiar with the books of Harry Potter? Because I'm not, not at all. I have not read a single book. I'm literally catching up. I catch up on the, the films as they come out. Yeah, I'm, I read the first few par pages of Philosopher's Stone and got bored, so I left it. I've read the last page in W.H. Smith. <laughs> I always have the habit of just reading the last page first thing. I wonder how they get there. Um, so... Oh, they don't get there. They'll die. <coughs> Spoiler. Um... Just kidding. Yes. Even if it's a fake spoiler. Um, so despite my reservations with the books, and despite the fact I've only seen the first three films, of which Azkaban is really terrific, directed by the same guy who made Children of Men, there are some interesting things about this from a visual point of view. It's beautifully shot in the sense that they've got that kind of drained out look, which suggests it's going much more towards an art house film. You've got the, the undercurrents coming out, and there's a whole debate on um, the Internet Movie Database about whether or not the last Harry Potter book is an allegory for the rise of fascism, which is an interesting angle to take on it. And I'm not I, I wouldn't have thought. I'm <laughs> not sure whether I buy that, although there is, there is invoking things like Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which is, you know, the Ministry of Magic looks like the kind of the Ministry of Information Retrieval in Brazil, although it's no, obviously not a perfect match for it. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that interests me is that it's, it's interesting that a mainstream blockbuster is being so deliberately downbeat in saying, you know, there will be action set pieces in this, but we do expect you to be on board for the best part of two and a half hours, and if you can't sit through it, well, tough. Yeah, it's a, it is a quite a, it's quite a, not an arrogant sort of thing, but it's like saying, we've got five hours of film coming over the next two years. Yes. Deal with it. <laughs> I mean, certainly I prefer that than, because uh, there was recently a film uh, called Carlos, which was released in... Its original cinema release it had the the two and a half hour cut, and then they released the director's cut, which is five hours long. Yeah, that's just a bit self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah, that's when you need to go. No, it's either two films or one. Make up your mind. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I, I, it's not for me to say whether it's going to be the best film in the series because, like I say, I've only seen up to and including Prisoner of Azkaban. But the, yeah. it's, well, it kind of you can kind of liken it to Daniel uh, Radcliffe's hair. Basically, the more hair Jelly wears and the more trendy his haircut, 
the more angsty and dark and moody he gets. So is there a gel overload in this film, do you think? Yeah, it's very much the bit of a... Moody gel. Sweeping the fringe out of the face sort of thing. And it's, yes. and it, like you say, it's, they make it... this Because to in, in illustrate that it's, it's a dark, moody film, they make it dark in terms of lighting. And they yeah. just have it look... It's I'm wondering if he's ever been tempted to actually... Because he's, he's got the Voldemort scar on his forehead and whether he's actually been tempted to gel his hair into the shape of that lightning bolt. Because that would be one hell of a quiff. Yeah, I think we should... Uh, we should have suggested that. We could have copyrighted that hairstyle. See, Hollywood, they never come caught on the show. Honestly, <laughs> you know, just unoriginal. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, from all the trailers and the posters, and it literally is, it's a bl light, light blues and greys, and it's just, uh, I don't know, it's... It's one, it's one of the films you couldn't watch on a Saturday afternoon in the summer because the sun shines through the curtains <laughs> and you wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> I think that's a fair point, but... Uh, like the Batman films, you can't watch them on a summer, summer afternoon. No, it's like, uh, hey, let's have a barbecue and watch The Dark Knight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you want to know why I use a knife? <laughs> so... <laughs> That's yeah. a 12 second video. We can talk about it in the morning. It's fine. Yeah, um, I think, well, basically, there's no point in saying whether we think it's good, bad. You're just going to go and see it anyway. Yeah, it's going to take huge amounts of money. And to be honest, out of all the stuff that's in the top ten, it's good that something like this is coming along, which actually stands yeah, the chance Yeah, it's good to have something new. <laughs> yes. Give us something different to talk about in the forthcoming week in terms of the top ten, because yes. Jackass 3D and Red and Social Network... They've been here forever. <laughs> yes, or the social network, I'm not complaining, it's a really great film. Um, should we mention a couple of others before we round up? We have two and a half minutes, so go for it. Right, a couple of things. Very quickly, Chico and Rita, which is a Spanish animation uh, by a guy called Fernando Treba. Uh, it's about a Cuban pianist and his chanteuse, which is a singer who, no, it sings songs sung by, written by somebody else. They fall in love, she becomes a superstar, which compromises their relationship. They go back together, but then he's deported back to Cuba, and it's kind of, you know, it's a, an adventure in which love conquers all. Number of things. The animation in this was a bit off-putting because it reminded me of a film called Bebe's Kids. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a really kind of odd '90s animation about um, no, no, it, which kind of set in place the whole cliche of man wanting to get together with single mum with kids. Yeah, it's not very good, but it is notable for its unique animation. But it does look kind of genuinely heartwarming, and it's got a good jazz soundtrack. You know, it talks about the founding of the Buena Vista Social Club. So if that's your bag, go and catch that. The other thing we should mention is Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, which is probably the most cumbersome title of the year. Um, a film which beat the uh, Mike Lee film Another Year to the Palm Door at Cannes, directed by, and I'm going to try and pronounce his name, Apichatpong Weerasithical, who is colloquially known as... standard. <laughs> who is... A colloquially known as Joe. That's what he prefers to be called. And he will be called Joe from now on. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's a film by Joe. Uh, the story revolves about a guy called Uncle Boonmi, who's an elderly man who has liver damage. He, one day his dead wife appears to him and he starts going through his past lives. There's some very strange stuff in this film, including a gorilla-like spirit with red glowing eyes and a woman apparently having, you know, a very prominent relationship with a catfish, shall we say. And it's one of those films where you'll either go in... You either come out of it thinking this is a really profound meditation on the transition between life and death and reincarnation, or you'll think this is totally pretentious garbage and it's ripping off David Lynch and Gaspar Noé and just no, not interested. Right then, we've got 20 seconds, so, so to round up the film of the week. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. If you're not up for that, go and see The Social Network if you haven't already. This week's cult film is The Man Who Fell to Earth, and next week's we'll do uh, They Live, John Carpenter. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be here in some form next week, and also the podcasts are being uploaded on the website shortly, so you can stay in touch with us and catch up on previous shows you may have missed. And we'll get back to the music. No, we'll get back to the news, and then we'll see you all after that. See you next week. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.